You guys can be seated. Well, I want to start off with a story about a former NFL quarterback who I'm sure you guys all know of. His name's Tim Tebow. And he accomplished really great things. Now, I'm not talking about uh, the national championship or his playoff win, though through those victories, he accomplished something even greater for God's kingdom. Listen to this. Just before the national championship game, he changes his eye black from Philippians 4.13 to John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, and whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And though they won that game, sure, that's a, a great victory, there was a greater victory still. When he changed his eye black after that game, his PR agent let him know that 94 million people Googled John 3.16. A result in Tim Tebow's faithfulness got 94 million people to get into God's word and essentially hear the gospel. Now this is even more amazing. Exactly three years from that day, Tim Tebow is playing in his first uh, NFL playoff game which they end up winning. Again, fine, good victory. His yards, his total yards of the game was 316 yards. His yards per rush was 3.16. His yards per completion was 31.6, and the time of possession was 31.06, and 90 million more people Googled John 3, 16. And I think it's stories like that that get us excited and we say, wow, God is doing amazing things through us. But why isn't God choosing me for these great things? Man, why don't I see victories like these in my life? I could really use a couple wins. What is it about me that God doesn't choose to use me to accomplish great things according to his kingdom? And maybe you're sitting here and being like, well, okay, I, I think I'm kind of good here. I think God does use me to accomplish great things. Fine, maybe he does. But I think all of us want to be used more. We all wanna see God working in our lives and through our lives to accomplish great things for his kingdom. So I hope you can answer that question this morning. Uh, turn to your Bibles to the story of David and Goliath. It's in 1 Samuel chapter 17. We're gonna pick up in verse four. Again, that's 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse four. As you guys are finding your way there, you have to know this. The Israelites and the Philistines are fighting again. They're always constantly at battle with one another. In fact, there's even a border of land that they share that is nicknamed the border of blood because of all of the battles that they had just faced. Now, if you know about the ancient world, you know that if you want to ex expand your land or gain more resources, you have to go out and conquer and get that. So that's why there's always fighting between the Israelites and the Philistines. As far as the Philistines, they were these big, strong, Viking-like warriors who feared the sea. They had really good um, military technology and they were always ready for battle. Well, in this instance, for David and Goliath, there's two hills and the armies are each on higher ground. Again, if you know anything about 
military combat or Star Wars, you know that the army or the Jedi with the higher ground has the advantage, yes? Well, that means that neither army wants to go into the valley to fight the other army who has the higher ground, who has the advantage. So you have this little standoff. And that's where we pick up here in verse four. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits in a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail. And the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear weighed 600 shekels of iron. And his shield-bearer went before him. He stood out and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourself and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all of Israel heard these words of the Philistines, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. The first point is this. What do you fear? What do you fear? The Philistines, or sorry, the Israelites feared Goliath. They feared the battle that was before him. And I think we can understand why when we first understand what in the world a shekel is. What are these measurements? So essentially what the author is doing here is it's really good storytelling, is he sets the stage with this really high tension. It's kind of like this doom and gloom where the original reader would read this and just get this pit that develops in their stomach like, oh no, how are they gonna overcome this one? And Goliath is named a champion. You guys need to know that this is actually a common thing that was happening in the ancient world with fighters is especially in this situation when you have two armies standing off against one another. Neither one wants to go into the valley and lose a lot of men, so you would elect your best fighter or your best champion, per se, and they would fight one-on-one, and whoever wins the the battle between the one-on-one combat wins the entire war or the entire battle. So this wasn't an uncommon thing for Goliath to say that he wanted to do. They would have been aware of that, and maybe Israel even had a champion to fight Goliath, but they were just too scared. Uh, Next thing, it says Goliath was six cubits in a span. That translates to nine feet, nine inches. This was a big dude. His coat of mail translates to a 120-pound vest. To put that into perspective for you guys, um, today our military might carry around 120 pounds of equipment total. So this was just his vest. And then finally, it talks about his iron point spear. The end of it is 16 pounds, okay? Sorry, Matt Falter's not even wielding this weapon. I mean, this is a heavy thing. (laughs) To put it in perspective, again, sledgehammers weigh around 10 10 to 15 pounds. They can get heavier, but that's, that's a serious weapon. We're gonna be struggling to even pick that thing up. So what the author is describing is this is the very first tank. The the military technology of his armor, of his size, of his skill, it was a tank. It was impenetrable. You can't be defeated. Imagine in World War I, as you're crouched down in a trench, 
and the earth starts to tremble. And there's this thunderous sound of a tank coming over, no problem, over all the trenches, straight through the barbed wire, barbed wire, armed to the teeth with machine guns and a cannon. This big metal beast. And all you have is a rifle and a helmet. There's nothing you can do. They were dismayed and greatly afraid. They feared the battle. And you might fear your battle. And I don't know what that battle might be. Maybe it's a sin pattern that you don't think you can shake, an addiction you can't overcome. Maybe it's a broken relationship that you don't quite think can be restored. Maybe it's the loss of a loved one that you don't think you can be healed from. Maybe it's infertility. Maybe it's something a little bit different. Maybe you're trying for something good to make the world a better place, to impact the lives of those around you. Maybe it's for your own child's salvation. You've raised in the church and you've passed down the faith and the hope that you have. And you pray for them day after day after day. And for whatever reason, they keep saying no to Jesus. And it's this battle that you fear. But who does David fear? Let's find out in verse 32. Bear with me. We're gonna be reading a lot of verses this morning. More than I've ever done in a sermon before. So know this, if you are just gonna listen to my voice read through it, you're gonna get bored because Emerson is boring. But God's word, we said, is alive and active. And so please get into your word and follow along and participate with us today. Um, Again, it's verse 32 of where we pick up. As you guys are finding your way there, uh, David has brothers who are in the army. And he's actually tending uh, his father's sheep and looking over them, but his dad tells him that you need to give these supplies and this food to your brothers. So as he's on his way there, this is day after day after day, Goliath is coming out and challenging the Israelites. And he's defying God in front of them. Well, David hears this, and he's like, what are we doing? What are we waiting for? Like, does he know who he's messing with? He's talking about the, our God, the God. Why has nobody done anything about this? And his words get back to Saul, and this is what David says to Saul in verse 32. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with the Philistine. And Saul said to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But but David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb for the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he rose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. For he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. And Saul said to David, go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put his helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor, and he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. 
Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved forward towards David, came near towards David, to, with his shield bare in front of him, and the Philistine took him. Philistine looked and saw David and disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with sword and with a spear and with a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to David, David ran quickly towards the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sunk into, the, into his forehead, and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. David feared the Lord. David didn't fear the battle. He didn't fear Goliath. He feared the Lord. Look back at verse 37. What does David say? The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. He's looking back at God's faithfulness. He realizes who's in control and who was the one who actually delivered him from the bear and the lion. It was God. So he knows who to fear. He knows who's in control. He knows who has the power. Verse 45. David says, you come to me with sword and with spear and with the javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. He knows who fights for him. He knows who to fear, he knows who has the power, and he knows who fights for him. He knows exactly which person to fear. It's not Goliath, it's the Lord. And then finally, in verse 47, he kind of just says outright, the battle is the Lord's, for the battle is the Lord's, verse 47. Proverbs 1-7 reminds us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of all knowledge because it gives us the proper perspective we need to know who is in control, who we need to trust, whose faithfulness we need to follow. And so I'll ask this, how often do you guys look back at the faithfulness and the provisions of God?
How often do you worry about the new circumstance placed in front of your life? Or a hypothetical one down the road that's not even there. I have to admit, (laughs) I'm not very good at this. And I was thinking, you know, I should probably, I should probably practice this like at least once, you know, before I tell everyone else that they ought to do this. So earlier this week, I was actually walking the trails and I was just gonna focus on like, okay, how has God been faithful? What are the things that I've missed? Let me just remember this. Let me really actually look for God's provisions and his faithfulness in my life. And guys, I'm telling you, there were so many things that I just missed and overlooked. I realized, I was like, man, wait, I'm thinking about a time when I was looking at that as a bummer. I can't believe that happened, but that gave me something over here which then prepared me for a different circumstance in life that I'm so thankful for that I had. And I'm not even kidding about this one. I like rediscovered how amazing and how blessed I am to have such a great wife. I didn't even get inside before I called her. I was like, Kara, I gotta tell you how amazing you are. I didn't even realize this. Why wouldn't you have let me know? But I'm telling you, all it takes sometimes is just to look and it can totally change your perspective. Who do you fear? Second point is this, who do you trust? Who do you trust? Look back at verses 38 and, and, uh, through 40. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor and he tried in vain to go for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Sometimes we try and fight our battles in other people's armor. We see some gift and some platform that works for somebody else and we say, well, I just need to imitate that. I'll just covet and idolize this gift and then I'll find some success. Man, God, if you just gave me that gift, then I think I would be able to go and do your mission. We try and fight our battles in other people's armor. The eye cannot say to the hand, I do not need you. God wants to use every single one of you uniquely. Every single person in here has a unique gift that God is just dying to use. He's saying, trust me. Lean into the gifts that I have given you. Stop chasing after these other idols, these other platforms. He's saying, you don't need that. You don't need somebody else's armor. All you need is me. Will you trust me? Saul trusted his gift while David trusted the gift giver. So David says, no, I'm not gonna trust in this gift. I'm gonna lean into the gift that God has given me where he's been faithful in the past is through this sling. Now let's talk about David's sling for a little bit. This is not a slingshot, okay? It's not like the thing that you kind of pull back and it shoots little stones, pew, pew, not that. This is like a lethal, lethal weapon. So picture like a leather pocket with two long strings attached to it that you would swing around, let go of one 
string and then be able to launch your rock at really, really high speeds. It was a lethal weapon, it was a deadly weapon, and to put it into perspective, how many of you guys, show of hands, have played the game and been hit with a baseball? Okay, it hurts, right? I've been hit with a baseball plenty of times, I've played for a while. I hit a lot of people with a baseball too. It hurts a lot less when you're the one who hits the person with the baseball, I've noticed that. Well, a baseball weighs five ounces. In a pound, there's 16 ounces. Oftentimes, the stone used for these slings weighed over a pound, so it's more than the force of three baseballs. And often, they were able to be slung at around or over 100 miles an hour, which is equal to, this is amazing, which is equal to the stopping power of a 44 Magnum. This is a quote from one of the articles I was reading. It said, due to the small size of its missile, making them nearly invisible when released at such high velocities. The sling was particularly, particularly hard to defend against. This is especially true considering that the blunt trauma caused by the small stones upon impact would rupture organs, shatter bones, or kill those struck in the head even when the victim was armored. This was a weapon that took down lions and bears, and a bear's skull is 10 times the density of a human skull. So David trusts in the Lord. He trusts in what the Lord gave him. Then David kind of does this funny thing as he picks up five stones. See, because if I'm writing this narrative, if my humanity Emerson is writing this narrative and trying to drive home a point of trusting the God. How many stones is David picking up? One. He picked up one stone because he knew that was all he needed. So what's going on? It's kind of funny. I, I, I tried to figure this out. You guys remember back in the day when gym classes had captains and they would pick, pick their teams? Some of you guys are reliving some trauma. I'm sorry. And there was always that last person, the last person picked for the team. And then the two captains would be like, what? I don't want Timmy, you take Timmy. I want the rock, give me the rock. And they're fighting over this rock, over the, like, the actual person. And so I wonder, was God saying, there's nobody faithful, I'll just take David, his stone, and then four more rocks for my team because nobody else in Israel is faithful enough to be a part of my team. Of course, I'm just kidding. What I think it actually is, is probably David practicing some wisdom, right? I wanna be prepared. The other thing is maybe it was just, that was all he could take. When we get to heaven, maybe we'll ask him, we'll be like, why'd you guys question that? I don't know, I just grabbed five stones. <laughs> so David was wise enough, he still trusted the Lord even though he grabbed five stones. And he was able to take down Goliath. Third point is this, what do you prioritize? What do you prioritize? We prioritize the victory over the character chosen to participate in the victory. David told us that the battle was not his, but it was the Lord's. David told us, listen, this isn't a story about David versus Goliath. But this is a story of God versus Goliath. 
And therefore, contrary to what we understand, this isn't an underdog story, but this is a story of the powerful prevailing. And so instead, what we need to focus on more is why did God choose David over Saul? Well, David prioritized the right things and Saul missed it. 1 Samuel 16, 7 reminds us that while man looks at the outward appearance, God looks at the heart. And everything on the outside appearance would would suggest that Saul should have been the one to go and fight Goliath. In chapter eight, the people of Israel ask God, "We, we want a king, a king that can go out before us and fight in our behalf for our battles. Well, this is it. This is your chance. This is literally somebody going out and fighting in your behalf your battles. Saul, the king, should have been the one to do it. In fact, Saul was taller. He was a head and shoulders taller than everyone else while David was a teenager. Saul had bronze armor, which was the highest form of technology at the time, and he had a sword and spear. He was skilled in combat and and in military. What is that, military abilities? He was skilled in combat. There we go. And David was a shepherd. But on the inside, David's character was far greater than Saul's. We first get introduced to Saul as he's on a rescue mission for his dad's donkey. And it's this really pathetic account of him kind of just like, wandering around and just like meandering around like, oh, where's this donkey? I don't know. And you can tell he doesn't care about the donkey at all. You can tell he, he's, he just cares about himself, which is consistent with what we see really throughout his whole kingship. And then in contrast with the way that David goes after his dad's sheep. There's no risk for Saul in finding this donkey or not, but there is risk for David because it's been taken by a lion and a bear. And David doesn't know it at the time, but he's faithful enough because he knows his mission. He knows he's supposed to protect these sheep. And so even with great risk, he goes after the lion and the bear. And he doesn't realize it at the time, but he's building this resume so that he can go to Saul later on and say, listen, the Lord who has delivered me from the lion and the bear will deliver me from this Philistine. And if Saul, if David doesn't actually go after the sheep, he's never gonna be able to fight Goliath because he's not gonna have any resume for it. He's not gonna be able to convince Saul to go before the Philistine and fight in behalf of the people. And so I don't know what's in front of you, what you have in your life that maybe it's the lion and it's the bear. And you've actually been going after that sheep more like Saul's been going after the donkey. When you need to handle your situations the way that David goes after the lion and the bear. Because see, we prioritize the great victory over the process. We want Goliath, but we're not willing to put in the work with the lion or the bear. 
And so do you reflect your situation or do you reflect Christ? Do you reflect a godly character that points to God at all times? You know, one of the things that I wonder, David was a shepherd, and he goes before the Israelites, and he fights a battle on behalf of them, holding his shepherd's staff. And I wonder if it's just a little nod towards Jesus, our good shepherd, who goes before us and fights our battles. So do you reflect your situation or do you reflect Christ? What is most valuable is not outward success, but it's godly character. So I asked many of you, actually the first question I asked some of you guys was, is what is most rare, most valuable? And I was thinking of like, you know, diamonds and even like the most rare diamonds are the most valuable diamonds. Thinking of money, you know, if you just print more of it, it decreases the value. And then I was talking to one of our deacons, Andy Waite, and he was like, no, serial killers are rare, but that's not valuable. So <laughs> thank you, Andy, good point. So then I changed the question to, what is most uncommon and valuable in one's character? And I got a lot of different responses, but it could all be boiled down essentially to this, humility. It's funny, you can kind of get to the root of all sin to be pride, and you can get to the root of all things that are good to be humility. It's what's most uncommon in our character, and I think it's what's most valuable. I was talking through some of my points with the staff as we were preparing, and uh, Elena Roberts actually pointed this out. She said, not only does David have humility when he faces Goliath, but even before that with the lion and the bears, he's building his character in anonymity. And I said, wow, what does anonymity mean? <laughs> but she's right. She explained it to me, and it's so true. How many people today have to go to the gym, and they don't go to the gym unless they post a gym selfie and let everyone know, hey, I'm building myself, I'm building character, look at what I'm doing, and they're telling everybody of how they're growing. It's not built in anonymity. It's not built with humility. It's not built behind the scenes. And for us today, David is a great example of humility. It's the whole narrative of what he's saying. Is he's constantly pointing to God, pointing to God. This isn't me. I'm not winning this battle. I didn't deliver myself from the lion and the bear. That was God. I'm not going to lean on these human gifts like this super high tech cool armor and sword and spear. I'm just going to lean into what God has given me. I'm trusting Him. It's all about God. But He's actually not our primary example of humility. For us, if, if you're like, man, you know what? I need to grow in humility. I will caution you to pray for that. I prayed for that recently, and he put me in situations that made me realize, oh, wow, okay, I get it. I need God. Humbled, consider myself humbled. But if you wanna grow, you go to the cross. 
which is the truest and deepest form of humility, humility that this world has ever seen. A God who became flesh and died for the, his enemies, died for sinners, died for those who don't deserve it, died for those who didn't want it, and that's true humility. And so the big idea is this. God invites those with his character to participate in the victory of his battles. I'll say that again. God invites those with his character, with godly character, that reflects him to participate in the victory of his battles. Because they're not our battles, they're his. David reminds us of this in verse 47. To whom the battle belongs. What do you fear? Who do you trust? And what do you prioritize? Could you guys imagine if every single one of us could remember God's faithfulness in our lives and continue to just lean into that? Examine the gifts that he's given us and ask him to actually use those well in us to trust him fully. What kind of a difference could we make if we focus on building our character into the likeness of Jesus instead of actually chasing after these victories that when it comes down to it, we have nothing to do with. The battles that are in front of us, we have no way of winning. We can't do it on our own. And so will we be a church that prioritizes the most rare thing in someone's character that is valuable, which is humility. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you again so much just for your word that is so alive, that is so relevant. God, that every time we open it, it pierces our heart. God, we admit that we sometimes can idolize and covet these great victories and these great wins in life. And we're not always willing to put in the work in the ways that you want to grow our character. And so God, I guess I asked gently to teach us humility, that we could look at the cross and be changed by it, God, because the gospel forever has the power to, to change us and refine us the more we go through it time and time and time again. God, you're so good. You're so faithful. You're, you love to provide for us and sometimes we just, we miss it. And so God, give us your character. We surrender to you now. In your name I pray, amen. Well, hey, listen, we have uh, people down front if you need prayer for anything, um, but if not, God bless you guys. Have a wonderful Sunday.